thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. All right, oh, do call us right now on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Chris is in the house and ready to answer all your questions. Good morning to you, Chris. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you so very much. Tell me about this insecticidal gene therapy. Yep. Well, there's a new paper out this week and scientists have discovered how to make an edible form of gene therapy that will kill insect pests. They're looking at the problem of the Colorado potato beetle, which originated, as the name suggests, in a small part of North America near Colorado. And because of the widespread cultivation of the potato, has now become endemic across the Americas, across Europe because of exports, and also right across into bits of Asia. And it can decimate and devastate potato crops, this pest. And the issue with it is it's now been branded a super pest because... They've had to use such high doses of insecticide on it uh, to deal with it that it's become almost resistant to pretty much everything. And this means it costs farmers a lot of money in lost produce, in having to use lots of insecticides, and there's the knock-on cost for nature, because if you're using large amounts of insecticides, you're not just taking down the bugs that you want to take down, you're also taking down potentially innocent creatures, including the pollinators that you want to visit your crop, pollinate it and increase your yield. So this group of scientists in Germany, Ralph Bock and his colleagues at the Max Planck Institute, they have come up with a different strategy and a targeted one. So what they do is they have taken potato plants, they've used genetic techniques to insert into the potato plant a short sequence called an interfering RNA. And this is a sequence of genetic material which is effectively the genetic mirror image of any of the genes that they decide to target in a cell. And when an insect like the Colorado potato beetle eats this material, it absorbs it into its body, it goes to the cells in its body, and it finds the genetic message that the cells are trying to run, like a program on your computer, to make things. And if any of those match up with this genetic mirror image that they've put in into the potato plant, the two link together and cancel each other out with the result that the cell then can't make what it needs and it dies. And the beautiful thing about this is that you can tailor-make that genetic mirror image so that it precisely matches only genes in a certain subset of insects or a certain set of pests so you don't end up with off-target killing effects of things that are innocent and that you don't want to harm. Now, the, the clever thing in their paper in Science this week is that rather than just make these interfering RNAs all over the potato plant, which people have tried to do in the past and which fails because the potato plant just breaks them down, they have targeted the production of these interfering RNA molecules just to structures in the leaves which are called chloroplasts. These are the things that make the leaves green. Uh, they contain the photosynthetic machinery. And the reason they're green is because those tiny structures which are in the leaves way back millions of years ago were free living microorganisms in the environment 
And at some point in history, they teamed up with primitive cells to become plant cells, and the plant gave the bacterium, or, or this protobacterium, a home, and the bacterium microorganism lent its genetic know-how to the plant cell so the two form a sort of partnership now because that is an independent entity inside the plant it's genetically isolated from the rest of the plant so if what they did was to target the production of these rna molecules just into those structures and they don't break them down so they were able to get very high levels of these interfering rna molecules in the leaves and this means that when the bugs come along and eat the plant between 70 and 100% of them just drop dead almost instantly. Mm. But were you and I to come along and eat the plant, we wouldn't be harmed. Very interesting indeed. Okay, geez, the lines are buzzing. Where did you all come from? Let's start with Caesar in Santon. Hi. Hi, hi, really? Yes. Yes, uh, I have a question for the scientist. Yes, we do. I wanted to ask uh, why is it that when you haven't been trained for a while, when you go back to training, you get a stitch on the left side of your, of your ribs? Basically. Okay, when you're doing that aerobic exercise and you get a stitch. Yeah. yeah. Hi, right. uh, th- there's a number of reasons why we get a stitch. And, and you've correctly put your sort of finger on it that part of it is being out of condition. And part of a stitch or part of the aching that you get in muscles is because muscles that are poorly trained have a poorer aerobic capacity. What I mean by that is that your muscles in any part of your body have not just one type of muscle in them, but maybe three. There's a very, very um, long-term, long-acting muscle called slow-twitch muscle, and this is very good for doing jobs that require it to be active for a long time. And they don't tend to be very powerful, those muscles, but they're pretty good at uh, burning oxygen, and they don't make many waste products. And then there are fast-twitch muscles, and these are the muscles that are very powerful, very fast, they do their job really quickly, but they don't use very much oxygen because they have a poor blood supply, and this means that they quickly make waste products, including lactic acid, and that builds up uncomfortably and makes a sort of burning sensation in the muscle. So part of the cramping and stitching pain you get when you're running and you're not trained is because you don't have very much slow-twitch red muscle. You have lots of this fast-twitch muscle to start with, and this leads to a build-up of waste products, including lactic acid, and that's uncomfortable. As you train, you increase the blood density of of capillaries, blood vessels in muscle. You increase the number of enzymes that can use oxygen in the muscle, and you get a sort of conversion of the muscle into slow-twitch muscle, and that helps to make the muscle burn energy using oxygen, which means fewer waste products build up, and so you don't get these stitches. That's the first point. Mm-hmm. And the other point I was going to make is that the other classical stitch that you get is because when you're running, your internal organs, including your liver, as you put your foot to the floor, your right foot, because your liver's on the right side of your body, as your right foot goes down, the liver has got a lot of momentum and it carries on trying to descend in your tummy. If you at the same time try to breathe in, then your diaphragm moves and it ends up moving in the opposite direction to your liver and stretches the ligament that connects the liver and the diaphragm together and that's uncomfortable. So sometimes you can combat a stitch if you're doing one of your marathons, Reedy. What you need to do Mm. is to break the cycle and change change your breath pattern Mm -hmm. with your step pattern and that will make the stitch go away. It's Chris Smith's guide to getting rid of a stitch and it definitely works. <laughs> Wonderful. I'll try that on Sunday. I'm running my first marathon in three years, so we'll see what happens there. You're going to run it in three years? <laughs> Blimey, that's a slow time, <laughs> really. I mean, even by my standards. Chris, stop I it. Took, I took about four hours. <laughs> <laughs> stop, stop, stop. Let's go to Pam in Ravonia. Hi. Hi, Reedy. 
Hi, good morning. Yes, good morning. Sorry, I just had to switch off my radio. Good morning. Uh, doctor, I will call you. Uh, I have a temperature that is below normal. It's 35 to 35.5. Now, when I was a little girl, the doctors used to tell me, if it's below normal, you actually more, you feel more sick. But you don't, you know, but you don't have a higher temperature. Now, I feel that I've got a very, very hot, hot temperature to my body all the time. People always say, gee, Pam, you're so hot. Um, how does this affect one? I'm 63 years old and I've lived like this and I'm a very healthy person, but I'm particularly hot. <laughs> well, well, we'll assume you mean thermally. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, well, the answer is that although we say accepted normal body temperature is 37 degrees, this is actually not strictly true. And it also ignores the fact that everybody is an individual. Everyone's a bit different. Everyone's a slightly different shape and size. Everyone has a slightly different metabolism because they're genetically a bit different. And therefore, 37 is a good average. And if you're above that, then there might well be something going on. And certainly, if you're above 37.5 degrees, you almost certainly have got something wrong. But at the same time, people's temperature does vary a little bit all the time. And when you go to bed at night and go to sleep, your metabolism slows down, your body slows down, and your temperature drops. When you wake up in the morning, your metabolism fires up and your temperature goes up. When you go for a run, your temperature goes up little bit and that's why you sweat or, or vasodilate you send blood into your peripheries to lose the extra temperature there are very few instances where people are pathologically the wrong temperature one of them is when someone has a thyroid problem your thyroid in your neck which sits in front of your windpipe this sets the metabolic tone for your entire body and under certain circumstances people can produce a bit too much thyroxine the hormone from the thyroid gland and this increases metabolism a bit too much and so people can raise their metabolic rate and raise their temperature and they feel very hot they also often complain that uh, at night time they're sweating hot there are certain infections that will obviously in, in a chronic way cause you to have a high body temperature but if you are otherwise feeling fit and well and you haven't noticed that there's been a change and that's the key thing if nothing has otherwise changed then it's very unlikely to be something pathological so I would carry on enjoying the fact that people think you are dead hot <laughs> Thank you, Pam. Thank you very much, and good luck with that. Uh, shall we go uh, to Mike in Melrose? Hi. Hi, guys. How are you doing? We're fine, Mike. Good. I just wanted to ask, when we buy fresh vegetables off the shelves in supermarkets, that at what rate do the vitamins and nutrients decrease or diminish? Okay. Oh, how long does, do they last? How many days? Hi, Mike. Well, the answer is that once you, you pick or harvest any kind of produce, it begins to deteriorate. And the thing that supermarkets are masters at is that they have worked out what the optimum time for picking and getting it onto the shelf is and how much storage they can get away with. And some of the really big supermarkets around the world, they have storage depots that are the sizes almost of cities where they're refrigerated and they can keep produce in there and it's all timed and barcoded so they know exactly how long something's been in a certain place because at the end of the day if the produce doesn't look fantastic on the shelves people are not going to buy it and if people do buy it and it doesn't taste as good as it possibly can people are not going to buy it again so there's a big emphasis now on getting good quality produce that that actually looks good and tastes good as to the quality of the ingredients the problem that we're facing is actually a slightly more subtle one than just picking stuff off a shelf because um unfortunately because we're very visually dominated creatures we tend to go for the stuff that looks good not necessarily the stuff that actually is nutritionally the best and there's a big drive amongst farmers and and 
producers to satisfy this insatiable requirement from the supermarkets mm. to get their produce looking fantastic and being huge. And what you end up with is this, these fruits and vegetables that, that they can look great, but they're just basically a giant bag of water with no mm. flavour. And scientists have begun to actually analyse this. And because we have largely inbred a lot of our produce to, to, to look like this with these giant t tomatoes and things that have a certain very con consistent feature to them, that, that actually a lot of the flavour is being lost because we're genetically breeding that out. And so there's a movement now, and scientists in America are looking at this recently, to try to breed our common pr uh, production tomatoes and things like that with wild-type plants again to reinsert and re-inject some, some of these genes and therefore push up also the nutrient levels again. So the bottom line is that the longer something spends... No, we've lost the naked scientists. We've lost the naked scientists. I don't know what happened there. It's never happened before. And uh, let's see what Thomas does uh, to fix that because he was in the middle of his answer and we need to remember at which point we lost him. And Eddie, I'm particularly interested in your question about rope, a rope, and uh, hopefully the naked scientist will answer that one for us. And uh, you know the story that's been doing the rounds about the couple that got stuck sexually because the husband had put some sort of mooty, uh, his wife was cheating and he warned her several times and then uh, next time he wa she was with her, her, her lover they got stuck and people were taking pictures I looked at that video and you can't really argue that these people are stuck it doesn't prove anything and secondly uh, the video at least that was on um, online maybe there are many but the one that my producers and I were looking at it's not South African police. It looks like another part of the world. So are people using a particular video and claiming that this is something that happened in South Africa? We're going to talk about that, by the way, after 10 o'clock. But I wanted to ask Chris, because there's an SMS here, wanting to know, is it possible for people's genitals to be stuck together uh, during sex and then nothing, uh, um, nothing happens? Let's take a break. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, I'm not even sure where we left off, where we lost you. I got in such a panic when I couldn't hear you oh, anymore. Oh, dear. Well, <laughs> what I was saying is that, and therefore the bottom line is that the longer a piece of produce spends off of a plant or out of the ground and on a supermarket shelf, the less good it's going to be for you ultimately. And so the best thing to do is to minimise that time and also don't necessarily buy the stuff that looks the best because it isn't necessarily the best for you because we're breeding uh, now produce for supermarkets that usually is a giant bag of water that's a triumph of appearance over nutritional value. All right, and then we've got Eddie in Mokubani. Good morning to you, Eddie. Hi, guys. Uh, my question is uh, very interesting. I have always wondered, when you drop a rope of some length and you leave it on the ground for a while, a day or so, in a pile, and then when you dropped it, it didn't have knots. The day you pull it out or straighten it out, it's got knots. How does that happen? <laughs> Hi, Eddie. It's a fantastic question, yeah. a bit like the question, where do all my socks go in the wash? <laughs> and uh, why, when I wash socks and duvet covers and pillowcases together, why do they always manage to find their way into the, inside each other? How does this happen? The answer is that a, a long rope is a very organised structure. And when you coil that rope, you're imparting a huge amount of order and organisation on the rope. When you pick up the rope, then unless you pick it up in directly the reverse order that you put it down, then some of the coils can fall through other coils. And when one coil falls through another coil, then that's the beginning of a tangle. And because the rope is a highly organised structure when it's coiled up, and a tangle is just disorganisation, there are many, 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 many ways, more, more ways, statistically speaking, for something to become disorganised rather than 
organised, and so it's almost an inevitability that things are going to get into a tangle. And in fact, this is a really important problem for biology because every single one of the cells, the 100 trillion or so cells in you that make up your body, have inside themselves a metre or so of DNA. And that DNA strand a metre packed into something which is a fraction of a millimetre across. So you can imagine that nature has the same problem to contend with. How does it coil up its DNA without getting that in a tangle? And nature does it by having tiny spools called histones or nucleosomes. And the DNA is wound around each of those in almost like beads on a string. So nature has had to solve the same problem as your rope in your backyard. So, Chris, there's this story that's doing the rounds, uh, especially in certain tabloids, of a couple that got stuck. Um, they, they couldn't separate from each other. Um, the story is that the wife was cheating on the husband who warned her, to, advised her to stop, and uh, threatened that next time she's with her lover, uh, he's going to use some um, magic or medicine uh, to, to punish her. So, the story goes, uh, she went to her lover, they were having sex, and they couldn't disengage as it were oh dear sounds uncomfortable (laughs) so uh, somebody on sms wants to know if it's scientifically possible for a man and woman to not to be able to to be stuck together basically well it certainly happens to some animals and nature has intended it that way that nature sorry that that some animals should end up with their bits and pieces stuck together because this is how you ensure successful impregnation because you make sure that the sperm end up where they need to go to guarantee that there's going to be uh, fathering of offspring. But also, the reason that some animals have evolved to do this is that if you've got animals that, rather like the two humans you describe, one might cheat on the other, not all animals are monogamous. Animals might mate multiple times with multiple partners, and what they're trying to do is to maximise the genetic diversity of the offspring they have. On the other hand, the males, they want to make sure that they have their offspring coming out into the next generation. How do you do that? Well, you make sure that basically you deluge the female in lots of your sperm and make sure that there's no chance that they're going to go and mate with somebody else next time. And so that's why some animals do this and they actually can do it quite painfully and some insects actually make arrange for bit, their bits to snap off inside the female so that it stays wow. in there and make sure she gets fertilised. In humans, there have been some cases described of people getting stuck together and it's usually because there's a, a degree of muscle spasm and swelling on the part of both parties. You can probably work out which way round mm. and as a result, it's uncomfortable to get things apart and you have to to wait until the muscle spasm subsides and things um, shrink a little bit and then it can be easier but the problem is when the muscles contract it can stop blood coming out of various bits of the body and this means it can swell more which can actually exacerbate the problem which is possibly what happened in this case possibly because the lady in question was nervous it might happen and that may have actually paradoxically made it happen because she was worrying about it. All right, thank you Chris. Thanks indeed for chatting to us and we'll podcast this conversation. And speaking of the couple that got stuck together, that's exactly what we're going to discuss after 10. Let's get the latest Eyewitness News. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.